Let's turn then to that psalm, Psalm 139, words of which I'm sure you are quite familiar with. As we have looked at many of these psalms Sunday evenings this summer, many of them uh, are so applicable to, to a baptism, and in fact, we've looked at several of them in that regard. Certainly, Psalm 139 fits that as well. But hopefully tonight as we look at it, I might be able to draw out from the psalm uh, perhaps a different aspect of why this psalm is so fitting for, for a baptism and the responsibilities that Bill and Becky have taken upon themselves and the vows that they have made and you also uh, as parents who have had your children baptized, why it fits. First of all, I'd have you note that Psalm 139 is written and addressed to the choir master. It is indeed a psalm of David. The fact that it's written to the choir master would indicate to us the fact that David intended this to be used in worship, that this was to be sung, that he intended that the people of Israel would sing this as they would come to the temple, as they'd come and bring their offerings, their sacrifices that this song would be one of those that that the choir would be singing around them and they would be hearing these glorious truths about our Lord. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, the darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them. With complete hatred, I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way 
everlasting. As far as the reading of God's Word, I invite you to keep it open this evening. Let's again bow in prayer. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, how wonderful are your thoughts and how vast and how, how amazed we are at the depth of your Word. And we ask your blessing on, on your Word this evening. Uh, Father, there is so much in just one psalm, and, uh, and we praise you for this, dear Lord. And we pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he brings the word tonight. Open our hearts and our minds that uh, we will not leave this place unchanged, but we will be ever more conformed to the image of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. We give a gift yet for baptisms, as we do for professions of faith. The gift that we give is a Bible storybook. One is uh, uh, perhaps a younger version. I've seen Bill and Becky already have that one. We, we, for the second baptism, we, we give a second children's Bible story book that we get from Reformed Heritage Books over there on Leonard Street at Puritan Reformed Seminary that include for us some of the, the beautiful stories of God's work beginning with creation and the flood, the call of Abraham. And and you can about imagine the stories that are included within that. One of the books has 365 stories, one that you would read every day. The the one that Bill and Becky are receiving uh, today is, is one that has a little longer accounts that you would perhaps spend a little bit more time with, uh, particularly as Izzy and Emma Lynn grow. But this psalm is telling us that there is a responsibility of parents. Yes, to teach their children those beautiful, beautiful stories of God's work. There there is no doubt about that. That from their earliest age, we ought to be talking about God as the one who has created the light. That God is the one who saved Noah and his family in the ark. Those accounts of David killing Goliath, the accounts of Paul and Silas escaping from that Philippian jail through the power of God, the beautiful stories that that Jesus told in the parables, the account of Jesus' life and certainly his suffering and death. These are things that, yes, when Bill and Becky stood and when you stood as parents as well and said, I'm going to do everything to teach them, My children, the things of God, yes, those are things that need to be taught. But David in Psalm 139 is telling us there are some other things that need to be taught. There's some other thoughts, ideas. Maybe we would say there are certain doctrines that we need to make sure we communicate to our children. Now the truth of this is most of the stories that you would find in those children's storybooks, those Bible storybooks, are about these things. But we as parents need to to know what stands behind this. What is this telling us about God? And in Psalm 139, David is laying out for us as parents and for us as believers five doctrinal things points that are so crucial for us to communicate to our children, for us to not only know, for us to not only believe, but to communicate, to teach them 
to our children. What are those five things? The first one is this. It's a big word, but it's a necessary word. It is the omniscience of the Lord. That's what David is after in these opening verses. He's telling us about the omniscience of the Lord. You say, well, okay, explain what that means. It means the knowledge of the Lord. It means that the Lord knows absolutely everything. This is something, you see, we need to communicate to our children. That that we can't leave that void in their thinking for the world and society to fill with all sorts of other ideas and concepts. That in some way the world might, might... take God and lower him from his position of being the one who is indeed all-knowing. For that is what omniscience means. It means to be all-knowing. We are to teach our children this, that God never learns. Think of that. God never learns. There is nothing that God ever learns. Because he already knows. To God, there is never any surprises. God is never surprised by the outcome of anything. You know, the scientist in his lab is sometimes surprised. I didn't know that was going to happen. God did. Sometimes politicians are surprised by the vote of some senators on a health care bill. God isn't. You can't surprise God. Or another way of stating it would be this. God never discovers anything. Because God is all-knowing. See, what a difference in that concept, isn't it? than going through life with, with guided by fate, guided by accident, guided by unsure of that which is going to happen and that which is going to take place. The Christian parent teaches their child that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And not only is He all-knowing in the sense of the present, God is all-knowing in the sense of his foreknowledge. Look at how David states it here in verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows where the end of this sermon is. God knows the time of the end of this sermon. God knows the next word that's coming out of my mouth. There is nothing that is unknown to God even before it occurs. It's not as if God is learning it or coming to know it as it happens. But God is aware of it even before it takes place. John and Marcia yesterday chose for their wedding Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9. Turn to that for a moment, if you would, please. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, 
but the Lord establishes his steps. We, we got plans. We, we think we know where things are going. But God knows. See, that's his foreknowledge. He is aware of that which is going to take place before it takes place. And he knows it. Even before he said, let there be light. Yesterday in, in, at the wedding, reflecting upon that, what particularly what the three girls have had to experience. When we were at the beach two weeks ago, I did some shell hunting. And sorry for those of you who were at the wedding, you have to hear it again, but I think it makes a good point. I, I, I'm out there shell hunting, thinking about in two weeks, we're going to be doing this wedding, and I I want to find some shells that have been worked on by the waves, have been worked on by the sand, and and all the rubbing, and all the chafing, and, and that have emerged smooth, and beautiful, and colorful. And so I selected three for each one of John's girls, and I, I, I gave them to him yesterday. I, I, they, they probably are too young to understand the concept, but hopefully, Lord willing, in the years to come, they'll understand that, that what they have been through, God has been using to polish something beautiful. God knew before he said let there be light, that Bob and Manon would be on Zuma Beach and that he would pick out those exact three shells. See, that's what we need to teach to our children. That is the God who has claimed Emmeline as his own. The God who has all knowledge even that which is before. How amazing it is to teach Emma that this is a God you see you can trust because he's all-knowing. For the unbeliever, These words of David in the first four verses have to be incredibly upsetting. I know they were for me. I know for me as a kid reading those verses, it's like, can't hide from God. Oh, he knows about the cookie. He knows about that bubblegum cigar from the drugstore. He knows. But as a believer, what awesome comfort is found in the fact that God's not discovering life as it goes on. But they not only knows, but as Proverbs says, he plans. And as Romans says, he purposes.
tremendous comfort for you and I as believers. The second thing, that's the only the first thing. The second thing that, that David would teach, would have the people of Israel worship and learn to hear from that choir as they would sing, is not only the omniscience of God, but also the omnipresence of God. That you cannot flee from the presence of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? No matter where I go, there you are. See, God is spirit. As Jesus reminded us, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why there is no physical body associated with God. That's why there is a command to that end. Don't make a representation of me. I'm spirit. We need to teach our children that. Not leave them with some conceived notion of what God looks like. That somehow changes their perspective on God. That's why we get the Bibles from Reformed Heritage. Because there aren't any images of God in them. Because you see, you don't necessarily want your child to think of God as an elderly grandfather. Because what do elderly grandfathers do? They forget your name. Elderly grandfathers have to wear adult diapers. Elderly grandfathers get sick and lie in hospital beds. Elderly grandfathers die. Is that what you really want to communicate to your children? This is your God, an elderly grandfather. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is why God can be, you see, omnipresent. That is why God can be everywhere. Because he is not bound by time. God exists as much in the past and in the future as he does in the present. You think about that one for a moment. God exists as much in the past as he does in the future as he does in the present. That's why his name for himself is I am. I am. He's not bound. By a physical body. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. So that David can say, I don't care if it's heights, it's depths, no matter where I go, there God is. Once again, for an unbeliever, shuddering in terror. I can't hide from this God. But what awesome comfort to teach Emma Lynn. Wherever you go, Emma Lynn, God is there. You see, and this is the message for the unbeliever. You may think, and I've run across people who express this. I want to go to hell. Because at least there I'll get away from God. My friend, hell is the reality of God. 
You can't escape God in hell. God's there too. And the horror is he's there only in his wrath. It's not that he's absent. He is present there for all of eternity as well. But only in his wrath. Not in his love, not in his mercy, not in his grace, not in his kindness. See, where can I go from your presence? You can't. For an unbeliever, I'll never escape this God. For the believer, this God is never going to leave me. No matter where I go. If I were to drown in the bottom of the sea, Lord, there you are. Wherever I go. That's what we teach our children. As we've obligated ourselves, as we've committed ourselves, we'll teach our children the truths of Scripture. Well, Psalm 139 is the truth of Scripture. God is everywhere present. Thirdly, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do. The example David gives of that is our own creation. See, that's where you have to fit in verses 13 through 16. That in our creation, what do we behold? We behold the power of God. This is a place of truth, right? It ought to be the place of truth. It ought to be the place where we can speak the truth. Male sperm cannot reproduce. A female egg cannot reproduce. Only God can create. Only God can bring life. Only God can uniquely design those chromosomes in such a way that life comes forth. Unique life. Separate life. Individual life. Only God has the power to do so. Only God is the creator life. See, that's what Emma Lynn needs to hear, right? Because as Emma Lynn grows up, we're, we're going to grow into more and more into an age, a scientific age, in which all sorts of scientific discoveries and experiments are going to be held. And who knows by the end of Emma Lynn's life where that all will be.
And I don't know where the course of science will take it. But this I know, no matter what science does, only God creates life. It is not the scientist in a laboratory that is creating life. It is only God. See, because it is not the scientist I am responsible to. It is God as my creator, as my designer, as my provider. So much so that David says, your eyes saw my unformed body. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That power of God. Womb to tomb and beyond. This is how James Montgomery Boyce phrased it. I preached on this section many times, so I, I, I think I can, I can continue on. I think you get the point. But I do want you to look, if you still have your Bibles open, at 17 and 18. Because I want you to notice what David does at this point. He's reflected upon the omniscience of God. He's reflected upon the omnipresence of God. He's reflected upon the omnipotence of God in this creative act of life, of human life. My life. It's not God just creates life. It's my life God has created. It's my life that God owns. Notice what David does. You think about that. And how does David respond? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. As he begins to mull this over in his mind, it's, it's like, this is incredible. This is the God. This is the God that, that we are to teach to our children. The God who... who causes us to lay awake at night sometimes thinking, wow, how can it be that he knows me? And when I awake, I'm still with thee. Makes me think, doesn't it? At least it makes me think of the hymn that we often sing, How Great Thou Art. Let's do that. Let's sing that first verse. We know it well enough. Let's sing it a cappella and just think about that in regards to these three points. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider my soul, my Savior God to be. How great thou art, how great 
sings, my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. But David didn't end the song. The psalm's not done. It's like, what more can you say about God? What more, David, would you want the choir master to have the choir sing to people as they come to worship? What more would you want the hearts of God's people to be lifted up to sing? David says, I want you to remember as well and to teach your children this, the justice of God. This omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God is also a God of justice. See, that's where the psalm picks up, isn't it? He's having this awesome thought, and then it's, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. See, David understands that part of that which needs to be communicated about God to our children, part of that which God's people need to testify of over and over and over again, is also the justice of God. Because He is, as we sang at the beginning of the worship, holy, holy, holy. That He is completely separate from sin and He cannot dwell amongst people who are sinful. That He does not tolerate sin. Not only because He is holy, but because He is righteous. There is this absolute standard of perfection. That God is pure in all of His work. God is pure in all of that He does. And He doesn't accept 95%. He doesn't accept good try. Only that which is righteous and holy and blameless See, in the midst of these awesome thoughts of God, David is also thinking about the justice of God. And we do not fulfill our parental responsibility until we teach our children that they are conceived and born in sin, and our children of wrath. Do you believe that? That's the question we have. Yes, I do. Well, then we ought to teach our children that too. Teaching our children their complete inability to save themselves in the light of this one who is indeed the God of justice. This too is his attribute. It's not only this knowledge, it's not only this power, it's not only this presence, it is also his justice. His justice in dealing with our sin and of rightly determining that we are children of wrath. This too needs to be communicated. But then David ends the psalm with these words. Thinking of God as the God of justice, 
who has this absolute standard of blameless righteousness. Why? Why would you ever say, so search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You're just asking for a clobbering, David. We know you. (laughs) You have some problems. You have issues. And it's not only you, David. My heart, my life does too. Why would you ask for this God of justice, this God who cannot tolerate wicked men, why would you ask that God to search you? He's going to find all of your sin. Why do you ask God to do such? Is it that David really thinks, I've never done anything wrong. Go ahead, God, inspect my life. Put the microscope on me. I've never committed a sin. I'm pretty confident of that, so go ahead and inspect. Do you think after everything that David has just written, that's really his attitude? Or has David just led us to something else that needs to be taught? The goodness of the Lord. See, why can you pray that prayer? This is not only the prayer of David. As I said, this was for the choir master. This was to be sung. This was for the worshipers. This was for God's people. To come into his presence. Here they they just brought their sacrifice for their sin. And now they're saying, search me, O God. Oh, did we just key in on what's going on? They had just brought their sacrifice for sin. And now they can say, search me, O God. What has happened? Yes, we teach our children they are sinners, conceived and born in sin, children of wrath. But we also teach them that they've been baptized, that Christ has a desire for them. Christ has a mind towards them. That Christ has offered himself upon a cross So that we, as the last verse of the hymn 455 tells us, clothed in His righteousness divine. can say, search me, O God. Try me. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm covered with His blood. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This too, you see, is what we teach our children. Of course we want to teach them that David slew Goliath. Of course we want to teach them that Noah was in an ark. Of course we want to teach them that Paul escaped from a prison. 
but we also want to teach them about grace, about God's provision of Christ. A provision so great, a provision so covering, a provision so all-cleansing that we can say at the end of a psalm that has highlighted God's power, God's knowledge, God's justice, search me, O God. I'm covered with the blood of Christ. Search me and lead me. Lead me in the way of life. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for breathing in to David these inspired, infallible words. That tonight you, Lord God, by the power of your spirit, have breathed out from these pages into our hearts, into our minds, and into our lives. Your word is living and active. Father, may it work within our hearts. May it be a reminder, not just to Bill and Becky tonight on the occasion of Emmeline's baptism, but Lord, may it be a reminder to each one of us of our responsibilities as parents, of our responsibilities as believers, as our responsibility as professing members of that which we are to teach. May we be reminded of this as, as the church. But this is what we need to communicate. This is what needs to be taught. These truths of who you are, of what you have done. In the name of Christ alone we pray. And God's people say, Amen.